Hi, I'm Zhang Mei, and this is the China Travel Podcast by Wild China. This is our book club series, Conversations with Authors. Our book picks are curated with China in mind, but range widely from history to food to technology and more. So please take us on your walk through the woods or evening drive and let our minds roam. For this month's book club, we read Joan is Okay. Let me start by introducing Wei Kewan, the author of the book. Wei Kewan is the author of two books, Chemistry and Joan is Okay. Her work has appeared in many notable publications, including the esteemed New Yorker, which I read on a weekly basis and feel guilty if I don't finish. And she has received numerous awards, including the 2018 Penn Hemingway a Whiting Award, and a National Book Foundation, five under 35, as well as being in the 2019 Best American Short Stories and O. Henry Prices. Waker has a Master's of Fine Arts from Boston University, as well as a Bachelor in, surprisingly, Chemistry, and a Doctorate in Epidemiology from Harvard. She currently lives in New York, and teaches at the University of Pennsylvania, Barnard, and uh, Columbia. Now, the book we're discussing today, Joan is Okay, is a piece of fiction. It has this very, I would say, a very dry humor that sometimes makes you giggle, and then in the next second, hits you with this powerful force that is so profound and moving. I couldn't put it down. The Chinese immigrant to America story has been told beautifully, you know, by so many previous, you know, women before Wakeham. There was June Chan's Wild Swan and, of course, Amy Tan's Joy Luck Club. And I really think, Wakeham, your Joan is okay is, is right up there with mm-hmm. those books. But telling a very different story, telling the story of a very different generation, well-off, very cool, <laughs> different from, uh, you know, before. So, and this generation I see all around me now, currently, they're the ones working in Silicon Valley, Google, Apple, Goldman Sachs, and McKinsey, etc. right? So I'll, I'll let Waker talk more about this. Thank you for taking the time. Of course. Thank you so much, May. Um, it's wonderful to, to be here and talk to you know, your readers. And when I got this opportunity, I was like, I have to do it because, you know, thinking about traveling to China has just been on my mind ever since. So I had written this book pre the pandemic. So I turned in a draft of this book, March of 2020, which was the time when the pandemic was really coming to a head in America. Mm -hmm. And so like we were going under lockdown, there's no pandemic in the first draft of this book. And then I had to readjust with my editor and fit the pandemic into this book because I had no intention of writing Joan, who's an Asian American doctor in America. I had no intention of incorporating the pandemic in there. And somehow it had to be incorporated later on because I couldn't not talk about it. So I had to incorporate Mm -hmm. it. At the time, I think I was drawing predominantly from an experience that I was having So I was born in Nanjing. And at that time, my grandmother was visiting from Nanjing for like two months um, with my parents in Detroit. And she just got stranded here for like 10 months. Like she was very, very unhappy. She really wanted to go back to China. They weren't really letting citizens in. It was sort of like the 5-1 policy. 
flights were always getting canceled. Her visa expired. So she finally made it back. She was supposed to leave in March, but she went back finally in September of that year. (laughs) Uh, And it was really wonderful to have her here, but I also couldn't visit her because America was also shut down. So I I think I was thinking about that because I don't think I will see my grandmother in the States again. I don't think my mother will see her mother in the States ever again. And I don't know when is the next time I'm going to be able to see her given sort of travel restrictions. And I think a lot of that sadness and just emotion went into the book in creating parts of the book that were pandemic driven for the family. I didn't think I could write a book without the pandemic after I thought about it. And that was kind of incorporated into that. Another reason One of the earliest reasons I wrote this book is my first book was about a chemist. I think in some ways, I don't want to say overrepresented, but Asians are very well represented in the fields of basic science research. Oftentimes, the Asian scientist is the worker. They do all the work that the PI wants you to do. And so that was kind of the basis of chemistry of this like somewhat very unhappy but disillusioned person who still really loves science. And I I love science. Like I... I came from such a heavy science background that I still really love science. And it's just hard to kind of think about, you know, having gone through that. And that was kind of the forefront of chemistry. When I came to Joan, one of the reasons I wanted to write Joan is that I was a maid of honor in a a bridesmaid party with six other doctors, including the (laughs) bride. And they're all Asian and they're Asian American doctors, (laughs) all from Harvard. So you can imagine how like crazy that bridesmaids party was and how organized it was. We were so organized. Everything was very accounted for. And I really admired these women and I really admired their work ethic. And I really admired, they came from, the generation of immigrants, as you said, who really struggled a lot, right, in terms of building the world, building a safety net for their children. But they were also under a lot of pressure to kind of perform in this like very meritocracy driven world. And they're all women in medicine. And I think if you do studies like women across the board underperform compared to men, supposedly, but Asian women, for some reason, never do, right? Like, they're always kind of overperforming compared to any sort of class. And I really wanted to capture this, like, just working woman who's just in this field, she just wants to do her job. And she's very frustrated that she's not able to do her job, because that's what she's trained to do. She's trained to work. She's trained to, like, show up for her job and be a very responsible citizen. Um, So I was very motivated by that. And when I wrote the first novel, I was really interested in thinking about the model minority framework. And, you know, oftentimes when I was growing up, I was told the model minority is this myth. And to be honest, I went to Harvard. I don't necessarily think it's a myth if I'm like, you know, if I'm symbolic of it and if if I represent it in many ways. And so I wanted to think about that model minority, quote unquote, myth and really interrogate that and think about you know, what this means for a character like this. So I knew that was the character I was trying to create. And just for like the the readers here, one of the books that I was very inspired by growing up was Camus' The Stranger. Oftentimes, Asian people in America are often seen as very um, robotic, emotionless. We just work. We don't know how to express ourselves. I don't know how many times in interviews I was coached, Waiki, you have to be personable. You have to show personality. You have to be extroverted. Otherwise, they're going to think that you're just like a boring Asian girl who can just do math, 
you know, I don't know how many times I was taught this, that I have to like put the energy forward or something. So I think that was one of the reasons I was so drawn to the stranger because he was essentially, this white man was essentially condemned for a lack of emotion. And I thought, what better protagonist for a book to mimic that, but an Asian woman trying to just work, but being condemned for her lack of emotions for the death of her father, which is the start of the book. And so that was kind of the idea of the book and it went further. And then when the pandemic came in, I folded it in with the parents, but also you know, um, it's interesting. I'm of the generation where medicine was like the safe path, right? Like if you can do medicine, you should go into medicine. I think a lot of people have always asked me questions like, Waiki, you're so good at science. Why didn't you just go into science? You know? So I think the sense of if you can do science, you should do it. And um, during the pandemic, this was the first time I saw some of my friends really question whether they should have been in medicine, because there was a lot of anti-Asian sentiment about COVID, like COVID was from China. So the sense of there's this disease from China causing problems. And Chinese people have been blamed for a lot of issues. They were banned from this country for 60 years, et cetera, et cetera. We've had a lot of problems with exclusion and sort of everything that's Chinese is gross, right? Like in growing up in this country, Chinese food is gross, it's too salty, MSG is bad for you. Um, And so I think that really played into that stereotype. And I think I had some friends really just wonder, why am I helping people who are dying of this disease when I'm being blamed on national television for this disease, you know, when that's the public Mm -hmm. sentiment? And I think that was the first time they really kind of thought about something identity oriented that was hard Mm -hmm. for them to process. And so I wrote this book mainly because oftentimes science is considered objective, and I don't think so. I think science has been very heavily politicized and thought about as sort of like a public entity. Um, And so that's kind of my spiel about Joe. I'm sorry if that was like a little bit over. (laughs) Hmm. It's it's very interesting. Like, it, it surprised me that the pandemic was added in later and also your exploration of identity sort of a sense of belonging I read your book actually right around the um, Olympic time so there was the Eileen Gu you know whether she's Chinese or she's American so the the discussion of identity and it was like in the middle of it so I thought those were your starting point for writing the book so very interesting Um, well okay Moving on to some of the paragraphs of the book, I will start with the word chuang. You talked about this word three times in yeah. the book. Yeah. Right? In the very beginning, that was the last word Joan said to her father. And uh, I often would confuse you with Joan. Somehow when I was reading the book, I would think of you as Joan. So sometimes I would say you. Okay, <laughs> You'd have to understand that's where I was coming from. Then then you explained these two different versions of chuang versus chuang on page 95 and 197. Would you mind reading us those two paragraphs? And tell me, I'm curious in two areas. One is, how did you decide to use the sound as such an important sort of character to shape your dad? And secondly, is how did you decide the placement of these three times, which was interesting. Yeah. You know, the placement, how they show up in the book. 
Yeah, so Chuang and Chuang. So Chuang, Chuang Zhao, and then Chuang, like you're going to like push forward. So I think I, I, I chose these two words because, well, it's a little bit of just personal experience. Like when you immigrate, my dad was always like, you know, Waiki, you got to you gotta like compete you gotta talk you gotta blah 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 blah. my dad had such an accent that sometimes it was really hard to tell what he was trying to say right so i think in my mind i was thinking the ways that chinese characters could sort of kind of change and could sort of kind of be different in a mind so in the book you know she's thinking about wait did my father mean the first character did my father mean the second character and her father's gone so she can't ask him anymore so she's sort of one of these in between areas where she's like i don't really know what he was trying to tell me and that was sort of a sense mm-hmm. of kind of loss right mm-hmm. um, but I'll, I'll read the two paragraphs that you mentioned for these two words so for Tsuang, the, the paragraph goes, to write a Chinese word, we sometimes do it in halves. On the left-hand side, we can put a person on top of an ocean wave. And on the right-hand side, give this wave-riding person a knife. A knife for fighting with, for striving with, a knife to accompany you on the unknown sea adventure ahead. Yeah. Tsuang, to create something that never was, to forge a new path, to innovate, to achieve, to strive, anything worth doing requires a person to talk. So that was that first character. Yeah. So this comes a little bit later and she's wondering maybe her dad meant Tuang. The other Tuang is third tone, not fourth. For this Tuang, we put a horse inside a door such that the character itself refers to breaking down barriers and charging through. I was reminded of the Trojan horse the surprise gift horse outside, but also of horsepower, which now belonged to cars. A green Mustang might be irrefutably American muscle, but so was the driver inside. He was pure American muscle with a Chinese heart. Goodbye, doctor, daughter, goodbye, but also see you again. So in that moment, I think, you know, I'm interested in Chinese characters because they, I think for Chinese audiences, this is very obvious, but In English-speaking books, in English books, oftentimes Spanish or French or Latin or Greek, they're just written into the text and you're almost Mm -hmm. expected to understand what they mean because Mm -hmm. English is a Romance Germanic language with an alphabet. Chinese is almost never written into text because I think no one, if you didn't have the pinging, would understand what that word means, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm interested in maybe making the Chinese language a little bit more accessible to people because I think it's a very beautiful language. And I think there's a lot of stories in that. And I think sometimes it's lost because oftentimes Chinese is written as pinging and not the actual characters, Mm -hmm. but no American would understand the character if you just wrote it. Right. So that was kind of my idea of incorporating those two Mm -hmm. words. Yeah. Well, I, I personally really liked the way you use these two words, two characters, and because largely they really show the character of your dad. I mean, your, see, yeah. I told you yeah. earlier. Oh, okay. Okay. You. okay, I get it. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> On that, the next interesting thing is you also shaped Joan's brother, Fang, mm-hmm. and the sister-in-law, they really represented the kind of new Chinese immigrants that we were talking about that really belong to the Southampton and the Greenwich <laughs> Village or those who live in Shanghai and may have another house in Atherton. I think you're the first person to really write about them. 
bring them to life. Right. Uh, just by the way, I'm drinking steaming hot water by now. It's no longer steaming. <laughs> you know, May, I have hot water too. I have like, I always have hot water. <laughs> so one of my thing about identity is, do you judge by the fact that we all drink hot water or by the passport oh, that you God. hold? so hard. Um, I think, um, you know, I would never say that I'm Chinese Chinese, right? I think um, I study the language. I try to be better at Chinese. Um, I always text my mother in Chinese. Um, I always, you know, we chat with my cousins in Chinese, but I'm not Chinese because my Chinese is stuck in 1995, right? <laughs> uh, I'm not modern. So, you know, but there's a lot of habits that I know, like the hot water, kind of like certain yeah. behavioral things, right? Um, that I just find very comforting. I think it's just, it just feels like home. And I understand the boiling of the water comes from like you disinfected and things like that. But yeah. I'm just so used to the taste. Like I have to go boil water. You know, I think I boil like four liters of water a day. um so you know now my husband does it and he doesn't understand why he does it he just boils water so it's it's just a habit it is I think identity is formed a lot of it is through habit yeah but you know you share certain tendencies but maybe you know you live in America so you are American versus live in China and you are Chinese on this topic I want to explore a little bit of this Chinese identity sort of evolution in, in America I saw on your resume that you teach in Philadelphia. I'm sure you've been to that uh, Chinatown there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and also the Philadelphia Art Museum. My son is studying over there. So I I just went a couple of months ago, right? And then he's like, I got to have some Chinese dumplings, mom. And I said, yes, I'm cooking your dumplings. So I went to Chinatown for grocery and it was as imagined, messy, kind of a little bit dirty. And, you know, I went into a noodle restaurant, that Lanzhou Lanyan restaurant, and um, not so exciting. And when you have that kind of Chinese food, somehow in my heart, I feel a little bit like the feeling of the older generation of Chinese who didn't quite have the confidence in some ways in these restaurants to sort of claim the the cultural heritage and say this is how Chinese food is done and let me find a way to explain it but instead they mold into the American culture right to this is what Americans like to eat so we serve it that way and then I went to the art museum where the biggest viewership I would say are these well-heeled Chinese who are very well dressed and uh, they have nice clothes, nice cameras, and walking around very polite um, in the art museum. And these two are two different generations. I'm not talking about age, but they are very different. Have you noticed the, the sort of like difference or have you thought about how this identity shifted over time? And what are the driving force? I mean, I think I come from my parents' generation where, you know, leaving China was sort of this like, quote unquote, blessing. There's opportunities outside. Um, my, my dad was born in 1960. So he lived through a cultural revolution, right? Like he didn't immigrate out of China until 1995. And I think at that time, it was just very tumultuous. 
and there's no wealth, but now there's more wealth, right? And it's just slightly different. And when there's wealth, there is the great appreciation of art. And I think that's wonderful. But art does take time because you have to be not worried about your survival to appreciate art, right? Like if you're still worried about how you're going to feed your family, you're not going to be thinking about art and literature and books, right? And beauty. So I think the Chinese immigrant generation, my generation, kids later, would be thinking a little bit more about kind of like what aesthetics, right? Like how can we contribute culturally to this country, America? Um, There's, you know, and how can we kind of explore sort of creativity and things like that? Whereas I think if you ask my father's generation, they'd be like, creativity. I don't really understand what you're trying to tell me about this, this thing, because my job is to provide for you. And they did. I had food, I had shelter, I had clothes, and they bought me books. And I, you know, I got into Harvard, right? It was like, I'm like the golden story of the immigrant child, but it was very hard, right? So I think giving more time, you sort of see that divide. I I do think that it is sometimes dangerous because, you know, I think about, you know, the Crazy Rich Asian book series and generation, and I admire the representation that that has provided, but I wonder if there's a way to define Asians other than through wealth, right? Like we are very wealthy, but maybe it's also, we are very well read, you know, some, some of the aspects of how we can contribute like to sort of the literature, to the landscape of art, to kind of critical Mm -hmm. thinking aesthetic thinking and I think that's what I was trying to think about with Joan and Tammy and Fong is like Fong is very rich he's a hedge fund banker I know so many of those I get it crypto whatever they're like all into it they're making a lot of money I get it but I think it takes three generations for people to be interested in art right um, I sort of skipped ahead but I think it take it does take three generations you know it, it's just a cycle of like kind of safety nets stability and things like that but it, it's such a difference in some ways I think I feel for my parents' generation like we're almost two generations apart because of cultural gaps and language I think my kids would feel not that far apart from me right because I would be speaking English fluently so there's a lot of other things that are kind of in in the way like me and my parents sometimes feel like they're my grandparents in some ways of what they experienced, you know, Mm -hmm. versus like they're my parents. Right. So to be honest, it's interesting. My my grandmother has kind of a different take on it. She actually reads a lot more in terms of like leisure because she just, she grew up in China. She was an architect. She's always lived in China. So I think she had the sense of kind of like a a different approach to how she kind of interacts with society. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the, the, the whole book, I adore all the characters, except there's, I'm, I have to complain to the author. <laughs> the only treatment that I did not please me, <laughs> you, oh, did not, you did not write to please me, but is, is the, the treatment of Mark. Okay. I was like, oh, this poor guy, he's so nice and sweet yeah. and gentle, yeah. well-meaning soul. Yeah, I know. But, yeah. I think, feel free to tell the story. I don't think we'd spoil much. <laughs> but So for, for maybe our readers, um, maybe I'll preface with the sense that the way that I built Mark was, um, if any of you are familiar with Seinfeld, um, I modeled Mark after Kramer. So I modeled Mark after this like kooky neighbor that moves in to Joan's empty floor. And I would recommend you guys 
Google Kramer and just like what he does. But he just barges into like Jerry's place and eats his food and like takes whatever and sort of has opinions. And Mark is very well-meaning. I'm not saying Kramer isn't well-meaning. I'm just saying Mark is sort of this, like, I wanted to create him as this quintessential New York neighbor who sort of um, has a lot of opinions about what it means to be New York, what it means to be a New York neighbor, what it means to live in a co-op in New York, what it means to live on the Upper West Side. Oh my God, Seinfeld pretty much has the Upper West Side stamped. And what it means to kind of be, you know, culture right like read the new yorker you need to read the new york times you need to read the book section you need to read arts and literature you need to read these books you need to have read i don't know camus or hemingway or things like that i think doing fiction in my graduate program i was told so much you didn't read updike why haven't you read updike um you didn't read cheever why didn't you read cheever alice monroe you didn't read this person like the sense that i hadn't read so many people in the canon catching up right I think in math, it would be like, you don't know who Pythagoras is. You don't know Pythagorean theorem. How do you not know that? I felt so stupid learning fiction and learning how to write. And mm-hmm. Mark is kind of an embodiment of that, that he is very well-meaning. He's very nice. He's a nice neighbor. He gives her a lot of things. But ultimately, I think he is one of these people who sort of has a certain way of thinking about what it means to be American, what it means to be a New Yorker, what it means to be a New York neighbor. And he is just so shocked. Joan doesn't even know Seinfeld. Like that blows his mind. And I think that was an echo of my own experience. When I first met my husband, I was like, I've never watched Seinfeld in my life. And he was like, you've never watched Seinfeld in your life. Like, I think I I, like ruined his day when I told him that. (laughs) How could you not? And I think the sense of cultural capital was something I was trying to echo through Mark that as a daughter of immigrants, I would never have. You know, I was not born in this country. I came here after moving around a lot. I came here when I was 12. I would not have had that cultural capital. And Mark is very well-intentioned. He wants to teach her, but the teaching becomes almost coincided with the sense of, you know, she also knows a lot. She can save a life. She's a respiratory doctor. She knows how to operate machines. There's a lot of things she could teach him but chooses not to because it's not the right place. It's not the hospital. You, a doctor would never try to teach anyone how to treat patients. But Mark wants to teach Joan how to be a person. And I think that's sort of the friction that they're under. And um, I, I, I get it. Like, you know, Mark was a very hard character to write me. And I, I, I understand sort of some of your frustration with him. <laughs> I, know, I just I just felt for him I, I know wanna... I know I do I feel for him too I think um it's like hard to sort of you know see that perspective mm-hmm. and I was drawing a lot on just like my MFA experience well you touched on this already so tell us how did you know you wanted to be a writer that's a great question um So I was a chemistry major at Harvard. Um, I did pretty much every single math Olympiad, science Olympiad, whatever, as a high school student. Yeah, I did. I did all of them and I won them. And so I think I got into Harvard at a perfect SAT, ACT score. Um, And I got in and I was like, I'm going to be a chem major. You know, I'm going to be pre-med. Um, Harvard doesn't let you do a double major. They don't even let you do a minor. So you have to pick one major. So I picked chemistry, but I took all the um, English classes that I could. So I took old English. I read the Canterbury Tales. I read Chaucer. I read all the Shakespeare's. I read all the Russian literatures. I read Bronte, Austin. You know, I read everyone. And 
I really mm. realized I love literature a lot. And I think in both areas of science and medicine and, you know, writing, you think about which field you can contribute the most to and which field you really want to change or at least add to. I had the skills to do both. And I think I was a little bit more drawn to the writing aspect, which is much harder, I understand. And I think I, you know, I'm very good at math. So I, I tried biostatistics and I was like, I really could have just gone to McKinsey. Um, but I think the sense was I really wanted to do something that maybe is representative of kind of a generation of Asian Americans. Otherwise, I think this generation would get lost and I would feel a little bit sad about that. But then amplify the invisibility of Asians, I think, the invisibility of my parents. My parents' generation is kind of totally invisible. They're happy to be. They don't want to be visible because then they think the government is after them, right? So mm. the, the sense of invisibility is so ingrained in my DNA. And being mm. a writer is the opposite of being invisible. So I, I just had this calling to that. And then when I was doing my PhD in epidemiology, um, which is kind of like massive health data processing, I did my MFA at BU and I sorry I did those two degrees concurrently. Um, oh. mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, I think, you know, I, I was like, I you have to do it. And also the MFA didn't pay any money and the grad program did pay a lot of money for a stipend like not that much money like three thousand dollars a month okay it's not like I was, <laughs> I was making a lot of money guys I was paying feeding myself um, <laughs> and so I did them together and chemistry ended up being my thesis and Hajin who wrote this wonderful book waiting my advisor and Sarah oh. Diaz, who wrote this wonderful book, The Friend, was also my advisor. So we had, um, they really enjoyed chemistry. And then I sort of went on this route to publishing and, and being a writer. But I would say that it's very hard. Um, I would say that more times than not, I sit there and I think maybe I should have just interviewed at Goldman Sachs or something. I, I don't know. You know, you think about kind of like with writing, if I, if I may, if I had to calculate how much I made per hour, it would be negative $500 an hour. Man. I would make <laughs> negative $500 now. Um, oh, I believe you. <laughs> versus like if I had a, a normal quote unquote job. So there are kind of pros and cons of that. But one of the pros is I get to meet someone like you and I get to meet readers mm -hmm. and I get to kind of talk about a book. And that's one of the great, you know, parts of this job. So are you teaching writing or are you teaching epidemiology right now? Um, I'm teaching writing. So at UPenn, Barnard, and Columbia, I teach writing and I teach writing at the undergrad and grad level, but I do a lot of freelance tutoring and teaching. So I teach medical students for their medical exams. And I guess I teach like, you know, the SAT and SAT, whatever, like all the tutoring stuff. But I don't teach epidemiology. I enjoyed my time in epidemiology. I think it was a field that I realized I didn't know if I could contribute to it in a meaningful way. And I sort of stepped back from it, but I enjoyed learning about it because it's a lot of health data. And also at the time I thought epidemiology, infectious disease epidemiology, who's going to get a job in infectious disease epidemiology? When are we going to have a pandemic? And this was like way before we had a pandemic. So, cause I took infectious disease and it was like you know it's like bubonic plague right like black death you know wow. cholera. it wasn't <laughs> wow. right so the next question is 
a question that all Chinese mothers would ask you. So you did a PhD in epidemiology from Harvard, and then you decided to become a writer. <laughs> so the, the Chinese parents would want their children always to take the safe profession, right? Lawyers, doctors, accountants, Goldman Sachs and McKinsey would be perfect choices. Many people will somehow find these careers not suiting their souls. And yet their parents would say, you are here already, just settle. You'll have a good, prosperous life. Did you encounter any of that? Was it a difficult choice for you? A hundred percent. I think one of the things was, it wasn't just my parents. I think my peers at this point still don't understand why I write since they're like, you're clearly very competent at science and math and why don't you just do that? And science and math can be learned. I 100% agree. Science and math can be learned. And I learned it really well. And I teach it really well. And I believe in science education for girls. I believe in science literacy. I really believe in science communication because it would help a lot with, you know, in this country. But I think with, with something like writing, one of the things is I, I sort of have been gifted with material in a way that, you know, material is a gift, like immigration, your parents, who, who you're born to, that's a gift in some ways. I really want to use that material in a way that respects my heritage and my lineage and my language. Um, I really like the Chinese language and I sometimes wish more people knew how like amazing this language was that was spoken by billions of people. Like it's the most spoken language in the world. And yet most of America has no idea anything about Chinese except for like what they make fun of you about in the, you know, they're like, they say chin ching chong and they make fun of you or whatever in the schoolyard. <laughs> and that has happened to me. And so I think I really want to kind of, I'm bilingual and I'm bilingual in the sense of science and, you know, writing. And I sort of want to kind of melt those things in a way that gives a reader an enjoyable experience. But I understand your worry. I think one of the things that I was made very clear is that I was never going to ask my parents for money. I don't, I don't, I like do three different adjunct jobs and I tutor like 40 hours a week just to make sure that I have time to write because I unfortunately did not marry someone with a trust fund (laughs) and I did not marry a cardiologist. Um, I married a chemistry professor, teaches at an undergrad college. So, Mm -hmm. and I live in New York, so it's a crazy amount of expenses. But I think one thing with writing is if you're going to do it, you sort of have to do it on your own. And I respect that. I'm I'm happy to support my own writing, but it is very hard. Like I write at 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. and then I work till now right so I sort of have like 14 hour days but it's really worth it because when I write it's so centering it's like it's like exercising you really kind of like learn something from the experience and get to write a book and I think that's such a privilege already so wow wow the one point of having financial independence as a sort of minimum threshold for making your own choices is something that I think is respects both the Chinese and the Western sort of values. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. But, but you took it one step further by just trusting your talent. If writing fails, you can always become an epidemiologist. I think a lot of it is the fear at the beginning. I don't know how many times I was told by the people closest to me that I would fail. I think, you know, your family says it to you because 
they they want to say the the worst things because I think the world is really hard, right? And they want to make sure you're prepared. I was totally prepared. I actually think publishing was nothing compared to like dealing with, you know, like my friends and my peers. But um, <laughs> you have to stand on your own. And I think I was never a Florida. I was never going to ask my parents for money. I, they don't have the funds for that. But if I was going to write, I knew how I had to support myself. And so I do, but it's just very hard. I, I don't have really that many regrets though. So I'm okay with it. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In Chinese, there's a word of 财务自由, right? Financial freedom. Uh, and I think there is a pressure in Chinese society that puts the bar, financial freedom, puts the bar so high. The bar means you own your house, you own your car, and uh, you can vacation in Italy. And a lot of young people feel like they have to grab and climb somehow to get to that bar before they can truly make their own choices. Mm-hmm. But I think in a way, the freedom you are describing is you live your own life. You set your yeah. own bar. I know. And I think, you know, that's one thing. I'm the only child. So I feel somewhat bad for my parents that they came left China, came to America and they're kid became a writer instead of like all of the other things that I could have become but um, I hope to make them proud they came here to give me an opportunity that I think they could not foresee right and I hope that's something that's important right that America we have a lot of problems but I love this country for what it's been able to do for my family and also for me but also just like the choice I think of choosing to do something you know the 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 buzzword in America is always freedom, but I think the, the buzzword that I love in this country is choice. Like I have the choice to kind of do this and then do something else. And I have the choice to just back it up, right? I can work, I can do whatever. Um, and there's this kind of like tolerance in certain ways of, of managing that. But yeah, you know, I think sometimes my parents were really worried that I would become a writer and they would have to pay my rent. But like they, they haven't been able to pay for any of my expenses since I was 18. So I think they're okay. But that was the real fear that they had, that they would have to pay for my rent while I videoed myself on TikTok or Douyin or whatever, and like made a living for myself. <laughs> oh, I think your parents should be totally very proud of you already. These, both these books are highly acclaimed. So yeah. you're doing great. I really love it. So, so materials, I want to come back. There's a lot of like, you know, your upbringing that has your, you know, through the immigration, settling different cultures and education and all of that. Fantastic. Some of the life that is every day that struck me very much was you talked about the mail that arrives in the mailbox and number one, Shengyun pamphlets, 5,000 years of history. And I just cracked up laughing because I see that all the time. Whenever the Shenyun pamphlet shows up, I think of this absurd Chinese culture in America. But you pick that up and then you contrasted that with the overly luxuriously produced invitation for bar mitzvah or something. Do, do you have a notebook writing down these things that strike you or it's just a mental note? Sort of not, not, I mean, I think um, I have a, generally as a, as a writer, I, I just have a pretty good memory for these things. So like when I oh. do, when, you know, when I'm living through experiences, I sort of know 
I'm going to use it later on. Um, and I don't necessarily write things down. I only write things down when I'm working on a project, right? Hmm. Interesting. If you want to start writing a novel, this is from Shuling Chen, related to science, such as marine science, what advice would you give? I would recommend reading authors that you like in that field. I don't know how many times I have students who just want to be published and to be read, but they won't read anybody else but themselves. And in some ways, as a writer, we are very narcissistic. I understand. I'm very narcissistic, you know, but you have to read a lot to figure out what has been said so that you can add to it. So I think if you're interested in marine biology, there's a lot of kind of ways that you can think about it. Are there books in marine biology that, you know, you're interested in that you want to add a fiction lens to? If there's not, and you're like, I'm going to write that first book on marine biology, I guess I'm thinking Moby Dick, right, would be the first one I would read <laughs> um, okay. and think about how we can kind of write a fiction lens to that. Um, but also, like, what are we going to add to that? Are my, am I bringing in basic science of marine biology into a fiction story? Am I, what am I doing with marine biology? So I think, you know, Toni Morrison said, if the book that you want to read is not out there, you have to write it. But you also have to read enough. Toni Morrison read a lot. So like, if the book she didn't want was not out there, it probably was not out there. So mm -hmm. ensure that the book that you want to write is not out there and then go for it and find a model for it. You know, for me, it was The Stranger for Joan. But if there's another book, like find a model for it and go from there. Here's from Amber Tao. I came to the U.S. from Chongqing at 16 and now 25. I never thought about staying in the U.S., but for some reason I'm still here. And I admit that I learned so much and achieved so much here. But I realized the longer I stay in the U.S., the more I don't belong to my home in China. I feel a little worried, lost, but excited at the same time. Weiko, can you share with us your definition of home? And by the way, all my family uh, in Chongqing. So I felt my home is still in Chongqing, but I spent almost half of my life in the U.S. already. Oh, I understand that. You know, it's interesting. I was born in China. I went to elementary school in Australia, Canada. I came to the United States. My dad was in Brazil for a while doing his like studies. So we were like a very split up family. I think for a while, home was where my parents were. And right now that's not where I live. But I think home is a very different thing now. Home is where you feel the most comfortable. Home is where you feel safe. Though occasionally I don't always feel safe in New York, but I think I feel a loyalty towards the city that I... I haven't felt in other cities. So, and I feel a sense of control here. Like, you know, New York was where I first published with The New Yorker and uh, chemistry did really well. And I wrote my second book. New York was where I got married. Like New York was where I found an apartment, you know, and I think home is sort of where you kind of become an adult, really. And so New York is that place for me right now. And I'm sure that will change. But I think here was where I really gained a lot of confidence and gained a lot of sense of myself. It is very hard. I would say that I think about it a lot. Once my parents go, where is home for me? I will be the only living family from my family line. Like my dad's entire side is in China. My mom's entire side is in China. And so I, I do think about that a lot. But I think home is a choice. And that's one of the great things about this country is you can choose where you want to live and you can choose where you want to make a home and you can choose your partner. You can choose your family. You can choose your friends. That is very contrary to the Chinese mindset of blood. It's just a kind of a different thing, but I do understand the alienation. And I think it just, 
it's inevitable. You let it happen because you gain so much else. You lose some, you gain some. It's sort of a balancing act. So beautifully said. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time to chat with Any last parting words of wisdom you want to share with us? I feel like you have more wisdom than I do. I mean, you, you've done it all and you have three kids. <laughs> <laughs> I actually am a huge admirer of how you do it. <laughs> you can find Weiku on Instagram. It's Weiku Wang, all connected in one word. And you can find a picture of Biscuit on wakeupwangrights.com slash dog. <laughs> That's where you can stay connected with Waker's future books, etc. Okay. Thanks again. Thanks, Waker, and thanks, Thank everybody. You. Thank you, Messi. See you, Dadia. <laughs>